Stanford University. It's my great pleasure to introduce Pasi Salber. Um, Pasi is the author of Finnish Lessons, which I have been um, greatly enjoying myself. Uh, the subtitle is What Can the World Learn from Educational Change in Finland? Uh, and he is an international emissary, not only for Finnish education, but for equitable and high-quality education around the world. And uh, we've heard the image of the tiger mom recently uh, in respect to some uh, intense educational investments in some uh, Asian nations. In a certain way, uh, Pasi is sort of a tiger dad for uh, equity and high-quality education around the world. He's passionate about it, and he works uh, tirelessly in this regard. Um, he is currently the Director General of uh, CIMO, I don't know how it's pronounced as an acronym, but it's the Center for International Mobility and Cooperation in the Finnish <coughs> Ministry of Education and Culture. He's worked as a teacher, a teacher educator, a researcher, and a policymaker in Finland, and as an expert for many international organizations, including the World Bank here in the United States in Washington, the European Commission in Turin, Italy, um, he is one of those rare people who works in the world of policy and stays connected to practice. So he continues to train teachers and leaders and to coach schools both in Finland and abroad. Uh, this book, Finnish Lessons, comes out at a critical time for us in the United States as we're preparing, really in a certain way in the denouement of No Child Left Behind, to negotiate a new policy structure for education in this country. Finland, as many of you know, is all the rage in international circles since the PISA scores came out in the year 2000. Um, Finland had been traditionally thought of as the lowest achieving uh, country in Scandinavia and one of the lower achieving ones in Europe for a very long time. It was not a highly developed education system. Uh, there were reforms that Pasi will talk about in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, but it wasn't until the year 2000 when some measures came out internationally, and Finland was at the top of most of those measures, that people said, whoa, what's going on uh, in Finland? And they have stayed uh, at the top of international rankings uh, since then. Several things are striking. First, the dramatic pace of change, given in the previous history of, and perspectives about uh, education in Finland. Uh, second, the strategies for change, which are diametrically different from those pursued in the United States. Um, and for that matter, even in neighboring Sweden, which has changed place in the international rankings with Finland in the years uh, since they've taken very different courses of education reform. Third, it has maintained equitable outcomes. It is one of the most equitable countries in terms of achievement, even with schools that in Helsinki, for example, are now substantially populated by immigrant students from um, North Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. Uh, so here to tell us more about how Finland has done all these things is my dear friend um, and a champion of education, Pasi Salver. Good afternoon, everybody. First of all, thank you very much for having me here, and thanks uh, to you also, Linda, for giving me this opportunity. This is, I, I really feel humbled and uh, honored at the same time, because um, whenever the, the name of this university is mentioned, I want to tell you that it means so much for our education as well. 
that many many of you who have been working here and and who have been he working here before you have really had an influence in what we are uh, doing, and, and particularly Linda. Linda's work in in teachers and teacher education is, is very well known in uh, in my university in Helsinki and in the whole country. Um, people often ask me that why why do I do all these things and uh, travel 10,000 miles to the other side of the world to talk about things? And there are really three things that I, I find, find important. Um, one of them is very personal and two, two are not. And the first one is that I, when, when I travel around the world and I meet people in education, I have come to a conclusion that the public education is at risk everywhere. And we, we, we have to, if we want to save it, we have to do something right now. This is my, one of, one of the things that I passionately believe is that we want to, uh, we, we, we must have uh, education systems that are publicly, not only financed, but also publicly run to a large, large extent. And that's, that's what I want to do. Um, the other one, the other reason why I do this is that, like Linda was saying, that Finland, this is a very new situation for Finns. Are there any Finns here? You? Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. The ten, ten years ago, or before 2002, really, we were very rarely asked to go anywhere. <laughs> so you know, now if somebody wants to hear stories from Finland, we, you know, I want to go. I want to take this opportunity because I also understand that this is not going to last forever. At some point, this will, we will be all taken by somebody else, and let's. Then these, all these things will be just nice memories. So I, um, I'm not here to tell you that uh, Finland has the best education system in the world, or we have found the, the final solution to the public education things. No, I, I don't think like this. First of all, I, I, I belong to those who think that it's, it's very difficult to compare education systems, saying that one country has a better education or worse education system than somebody else. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's just the OECD PISA that we are using here. And, and PISA is just one small but important uh, part of the story. But uh, you know, we, we in Finland, right? But we don't think that we want to be the best in the world. We want to do good things and good job and make sure that we do what we promise. And that's why that's why we are here. And the third one, the third reason why I'm I'm doing all these things that are taking a lot of um, a lot of my time and, and energy and. Uh, and my attention away from many other things is that my grandfather was American. He actually was a, a Russian, and then he came to, um, came to the East Coast of the United States, and then went back after the, the First World War, and uh, when Finland became independent in 1917, he came to see his old father and, and family, and then, you know, as it sometimes happens that you, you meet somebody you like very much, people in love, and get married and then family came. So with a little bit different different uh, situation, I could be one of you. Right? And he, he remained American until the Second World War, and I remember he passed away already a long time ago, but he was educated here. He went to the, um, he went to the Brooklyn Technical College and got an education to be an engineer. And when I was a little boy in the, in the primary school, I remember him always telling about the greatness of American education. He was always proud of what this country was able to give him in terms of uh, good technical skills and knowledge and uh, that he enjoyed the rest of his life. And somehow I feel that I, I want to give back something that I have 
I, I have uh, been privileged to be able to understand living and working and education in Finland. So that's that's my story. Mm-hmm. And now I, I will speak very briefly about the book because um, I understand that we're going to have a little conversation here, and I, I want you to. Um, have an opportunity to say something as well. <coughs> this is not going to be a kind of a. I, I would be fooled to, to explain you, uh, reveal you the secret of the Finnish story because I want you to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why that's what I have learned about the uh, being here in, in America that you, you want to sell also something. So <laughs> I'll tell you just a little bit, a little kind of a kind of a thesis, teasers from the book, and then I want you to go outside and buy the book. Right? Okay. And I can promise if you buy the book, you're going to be a different person. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Okay. So in the, in the first half of my, my uh, about half an hour presentation will be about the context. I want to say a few things about where the education system and these reforms have been taking place because most probably everybody here knows about these things. Then I have, uh, in the second half of my presentation, I have three things that I... I guess would be relevant for the American education policy and reform thinking here. You know, the title said that what the world can learn from education, uh, education on states in Finland. It includes the United States of America, but also it includes England, uh, Finland and, and many other countries. And then in the, th- in the third half of my presentation, I'm going to uh, speak about some critical things that I think we should consider based on the, the story that we have been doing here. So are you ready for this? Yeah, you, you understand my English? <laughs> if you don't, just stop me and I'll, uh, I'll try to explain. Is there anybody from Sweden here? Oops. How about Norway? The Norway is good too, but I have, now I have to delete all my Swedish jokes because I know, I you know what I'm talking about if you share these things. Uh, I was in Vanderbilt University in Nashville about a month ago. Uh, I had a room full of people there. Uh, no, seriously, I had a lot of nice stories about Finns and Swedes. Yeah? And I made this mistake not to ask if there's anybody from Sweden there. I, I rolled these, all these jokes and people were rolling on the floor. And then I said, oh, is there anybody from Sweden? Yeah, there was one lady sitting in the first row and said, yes, I'm from Sweden. I said, okay, that's fine. And she didn't look quite happy about these things. <laughs> and then in the end, uh, end of the presentation, she came to me and said, may I introduce myself? I'm a dean of the School of Education here in Vanderbilt. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to make this mistake again. Okay, so some, some things about the... Um, can you see you all good? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some things about the... Um, very quickly, the introduction to what the Finland is, because one, one thing I have learned here in the United States is that people sometimes have quite um, strange conceptions of what Finland is all about. So I want to just put you you, you some things here that are very important when we think about education. First of all, we are about five and a half million people. This is a map of Finland. We are there in in the very north of Europe. Uh, We have a parliamentary democracy. This has everything to do with education policy as well. We have a government at the moment with six parties in the government, and our parliament has about nine different parties represented there. So we don't have this issue that you have here and some other countries where you have either this or something else. We always we have to build our things in a in a political consensus, just like in Sweden, right? It's a it's a kind of a consensus building policy. So it's a it's a very different political process than here when you either talk about this one or that one, and then the consensus is sometimes very difficult to do. 
We are a member of the European Union now already since the 1995. Very important thing for education as well because European Union doesn't have an education agenda or education, common education policy. It's the only area that doesn't have a kind of a common European level um, uh, regulation. Everything else is regulated from Brussels, but education is not. So we are fully, member states are fully autonomous. So everybody can do whatever they want to do with education as they, as they wish. Finland has one of the most competitive uh, capitalist market economies in the world. When uh, the national competitiveness is, is ranked and measured, Finland is always ranking there high together with the United States. So don't make the mistake that Finland would be somehow a socialist planned economy, like somebody is telling me that it's easy to make these educational miracles because you are kind of a command-based socialist society where teachers can be ordered to do things. That's wrong. We are very um, liberal, open uh, market economy where many things, almost everything is run by, um, by the rules of the free market except education. That's the only thing that we try to keep very much outside of these things. Innovation and research is a very important part of what we do. We have more people in our labor force working in research and innovation than any other country <coughs> in the planet. Actually, it's about two and a half times more uh, proportionally uh, labor force in this, these fields than in the OECD countries in general. So it's a very, it's a, it's a very significant uh, proportion of people who are working in the field of knowledge. We have a very high high level of prosperity in, internationally compared to a, a part of this Nordic welfare state system, which is a very important thing. And the um, income inequality is re still relatively low. It's a, it's a very different to the United States and some other countries. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, we all have an Iceland, a very small, uh, relatively small income inequality. And this gets back to the child poverty issue as well. That is a very different uh, thing than here. We have about 4% of our children, um, according to the, the UNICEF statistics, is, um, uh, is the, the share that is considered as a, a child poverty rate. Here in the United States, it's 20 plus, right? Something like this. Okay. Some things about the education indicators, again, very quickly to give you an idea what we are talking about. We have the whole system has about 3,500 schools, 60,000 teachers. Um, we spend about 5.9% of our national wealth to education. In the United States, it's about 7.3%. Uh, so it's a, this is a relatively more expensive education system than in Finland, uh, particularly because of your higher education system here. Um, our pri one primary school student cost about 7,000 US dollars uh, converted to the PPP in uh, each, each year in the United States is about $10,000. So we again are talking about very different types of comparable prices. Almost all the K-12 education in Finland is privately funded. We don't have any private schools. It's against the uh, constitution to pay for tuition, uh, pay tuition for the for education that leads to the degree of qualification. Uh, in the United States, it's about 10% of uh, K-12 to education is funded from uh, parents' uh, pockets. Again, a very different thing. All the teachers in Finland have to um, hold master's degrees. You cannot teach in an elementary school, junior high or high school without master's degree. So uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a common standard uh, for everybody. 
and we have 90, more than 95% of our teachers and principals are unionized. They belong to this one large trade union of education in, in Finland, based on their own choice. Yeah. Are you, you with me? Yeah. How does it look like? Strange, different, yeah? Okay, the three things I think you, you need to know, and Linda already mentioned uh, some of these, but these are very important to, if, if we are able to, if, if we are in order to understand what I'm writing in the book, or what is to follow here within the next uh, 20 minutes or so. First of all, Finland has not always been a high performer. You know, there are people who believe that we have always, because we are small and homogeneous and different, that we have always been doing well, and there's nothing strange, nothing, nothing special here. But this is not true. We have been uh, we have been progressing steadily since the 1970s and 80s, uh, and, and this is something that invites the question that what did Finland do to be able to have this progress steadily? Okay. The ne next one is that we never aim to be the top uh, performer. This is not the way of thinking in Finland that we want to be the first. Now we have a Swedish colleague here. With your permission, let me tell you one story that is true. This is not the anecdote, but this is a really funny thing, uh, I, I think, for all the Finns. But I was working in the Ministry of Education in the 1990s when we were uh, kind of busily building this, this type of culture in our schools where things were given to the schools and principals and teachers to decide what they can do and where to find this uh, kind of emotional energy to, to build a good education system. I went to Stockholm with the then. Uh, Minister of Education, this was about 1993, and we had a meeting with the Swedish minister there in a small cabinet, and we are sitting there and listening to this, this lengthy presentation from the Swedish Minister of Education about the Swedish strategy, how to become the number one education nation by year 2000 when the OECD is running the first PISA. Yeah. And then our minister got a chance to, to uh, respond, so she said that, thank you very much, you know, this is all very interesting, and what else can I say, but we wish you all the good luck for this. <laughs> and the second thing is that in Finland, our, I can tell you that in Finland our goals are much more modest than yours here in, in Sweden, because in Finland, you see, it's enough for us to be head of Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was a kind of a, kind of a humoristic moment then, but it, the, the, Kind of a, the real joke is there that it's actually happened. <laughs> but this tells a lot about this Finnish attitude that we have never, our policies and reforms have never been driven the excellence or achievement or being the best like many other countries have done. I still doing. I know countries on this planet who say in their education, national education policy, that we want to be number one nation in PISA in 2015. And this is not the way we think about education. In Finland, it's more about equity. It's more about <coughs> making sure that each and every child and citizen has a good opportunity to learn, exactly like in, in, in Sweden uh, has done. And then the third one, and a very important thing, is that we should not think that Finland has only been able to create a good education system, but Finland is doing very well in many other areas of uh, of life as well. Economy is one of them. Uh, Finland has a very strong and, and good governance in the public sector. There's a very little corruption in the system. Uh, we have a very advanced technology and innovation system. Uh, environmental policies are implemented to the um, um, uh, good extent, like um, uh, if compared internationally and so on. 
So many other things there. And in my book, I actually argue that this good performance of education system has been supported by these other areas. But it's, no, it's not really a miracle in Finland, because it's just a part of the entire story of doing things in a Finnish way. And education is just, uh, just one part of these things. And I, I strongly believe that this is how things should go, that we cannot just be best in the world in one area. We, we, have, to, we have to develop the system as a whole. Okay, let me give you some Finnish lessons then. This is all comes from the book. And uh, those who have read the book or has a has thirty-five dollars and buy the book by the uh, by the end of the presentation. You will find all these ten things in the in the in the section where I lay out the plan of the book. But I, I think this is a very telling and, and um, uh, help, helpful thing to understand what I am actually trying to do with this. The first thing is uh, to tell about this book is that that we we have a system that is both that has both excellence and equity at the same time. And this has been, for the Finns, probably the most important finding of this uh, huge global hype that we have been enjoying after the release of uh, 2000 visa results 10 years ago. There were many people in Finland who believed that if we, have, if we build an equitable education system that is good for all, everybody, then we have to, we have to do this at the expense of quality. In other words, that everybody will know something, but we don't have any we don't have any kind of excellence. And, and the big finding of this visa is, uh, and it's the same, same is true with Canada, same is true with uh, Korea and, and Japan, that the equity and excellence can be brought together to the picture at the same time. And what is different in Finland is that we have been able to do this with the relatively um, small effort financially, money-wise, and also time-wise, how much time people put into this system, compared to Korea, for example. Our results are pretty much the same but Korean children are doing two or three times more work for this compared to Finns. So this is a kind of a significance of, of this book, and of course invites many uh, many questions. The, the second one is that this has not always been so, and I have a little picture here to illustrate this, um, just to make my point that we have experienced a steady progress starting from probably 1970s when we have the international data available. And, and this is what has happened, that we came from behind of everybody else, just like Linda was saying, and at some point during the last 40 years we have been able to pass the others. Now, depending, of course, how do we define the progress and, and, and the quality. I'm taking several things here, like efficiency, economic efficiency, also the learning outcomes, equity, and participation or graduation um, rates in the education system. If you put this, all these indicators together, you get a kind of an overall idea of educational performance, and Finland has been progressing in all these, all these fields, uh, something like this. And this is an important, uh, important finding. Thirdly, the teaching is a kind of a key uh, driver of this uh, reform, and a key driver of, a key f feature of Finnish education system. There are so many people in, in my country who want to, who see teaching as a kind of a, um, the ideal, uh, a dream job, as I call it, in the book. Uh, but we cannot, we cannot really explain why is, why is this? Why the fifth of our, our high school graduates report that they, their primary, primary um, hope is to become teachers, to go into teaching profession, and it's, it's a very rare. And they, they are not the, 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 uh, the bottom half of 
the graduates, but it's a, most of these <coughs> students come from the very high achieving high school uh, students. So that's why we have probably probably the most competitive or one of the most competitive teacher education systems in, in the world. Very few are able to go through. It's a, the nationality the acceptance rate is now about 10%. So against 10 applicants, we are selecting one student to primary school teacher education programs. It's a little bit different in the subject teaching when you teach in a, in a junior high school or high school. But this is it's a very, very competitive. It's more difficult to become primary school teacher than medical uh, student in, in uh, our system, if you just take, take, the, take the numbers. So we have a lot of autonomy and um, um, uh, access for teachers to professional development. Teaching, uh, teaching is, a, is a very high profession and there's a lot of freedom in the school. It's a, probably something that you would call here a professional learning community uh, issue. We, in my book, I'm arguing that all the schools in Finland are professional learning communities because of the, how they spend time and how these people are trained and provided with the access to professional development uh, services. So <coughs> Finnish schools look very different to what the schools look typically uh, in many other countries, including here. Just look at the, take a look at the teachers' lounges, for example, in Finnish schools. They are really, in most places, they are built for teachers to work together as well, not only have a, have a nap after seven hours of, uh, <laughs> of hectic teaching every day. It's a, it's a different concept altogether. So those who are lucky enough to go uh, get through into teacher training programs normally stay teachers for life. Yeah? It's a, it, this is changing a little bit now, but we still have very, very low rates of those <coughs> teachers who enroll in teaching profession and then leave. Linda is saying that here in the United States you have about half of your teachers are leaving by the end of the fifth year, right? About a third, and half in urban areas. Yeah, so it's, it's still a very high, high rate of uh, uh, of those teachers who decide to go. It's a, this is a very different thing in Finland. If you're a teacher, we say in Finland, if you once a teacher, you are always a teacher. You cannot uh, you cannot get away from this. So then, another thing that is a kind of a striking fact from our education system is that how, how many of our young people, when they, when they are 15, 16, when they leave the compulsory education and when they have the chance to do whatever they want to do, either continue in high school or do something else, about half of them have been in special education or have received a, some type of counseling or, or individual, individualized support. It's a, it's a very high rate. The special education in Finland is not really special anymore because majority of students are having special education. So for parents and students, the threshold to go and seek for um, help and support is, is very low. I, re I remember my own son came to me once and he was about 10 or 11. And he said, Dad, I think I have to go to special education because uh, I find reading difficult. And so he did. He went there and spoke to the teacher and said, I need some support. So he, he got some individualized uh, assistance and he was very happy about this. In many other countries, parents would keep this as a very, very last resort to say that my son has nothing wrong. Yeah. So it's a teacher that is a problem, not my son. Yeah. So that's, that's why we, uh, we have a different culture in this. So in Finland, teachers teach, teach less and students spend less time in classroom and they also do uh, much less homework than they do in many other countries, including here. And this is one of these paradoxes that I have in my book, that how, how is it possible to build 
a high-performing education system where nobody seems to be doing anything. <laughs> teachers are not teaching, and students are not doing homework or anything, but still the results are high. Yeah. This is, uh, read the book and you will get the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Am I doing well with this American way? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so then the ninth thing is that Finnish schools, we, we don't have any standardized testing except the, the high school leaving examination at the end of the high school when students are already 18 or 19 years of age. But otherwise our, our uh, primary school and junior high school, you, they are what we call the standardized free standardized testing free zones. Yeah? There's no standardized testing allowed there. It doesn't mean that we won't have any assessment or testing or evaluation, but we don't employ standardized testing like you do here, where the data is used for all sorts of purposes and the tests are having so high stakes for children and teachers and everybody that nobody really feels good about that. So we don't, we don't do these things um, in the same way. I'm happy to talk about this if you, if you want to hear more about how does it work. And, and then the last thing here, um, you know, if you look at the policies, if you look at the things that uh, you can identify that Finland has been doing, uh, whether it's a testing or accountability or choice or curriculum or many other things, they are not only different to what you have been doing and what you're doing here now, but they are all, almost the opposite, right? There was, a, some, uh, there was a, a school board member from Washington, D.C., school board in Finland. For four months, she spent in, a, in a, one of the districts in, a, in a Lapland. And she wanted to see me about a year ago in Washington. And she told me this. She said that not only that you do different things, but what the, the D.C. school board, for example, is when they are talking about education, is, is a, uh, exactly the opposite of everything. And, and that's what is a kind of an interesting thing. And, and one, of, one of the lessons of my book is that there's another way, you know, people who have lost their faith in, in public education and reforming uh, policies and systems. You know, if you read my book, you can see that there's, uh, there is hope, but you have to be smart the way you do things. Uh, and many of the things that you are trying to do here now, I see very little hope. There's not, this book doesn't provide any evidence that these key policies and drivers would lead anywhere where I will uh, come in a minute. Now I'll show you some pictures now. So all these pictures are pictures of Finnish schools and students and there are some ideas. But I would like to come to three things now. What I think, I, and I hope that they are interesting for the American audiences and educators to think about. And, and the first one of them is the, the this um, Kind of, a link, kind of a link between the educational achievement or excellence and equity or equality of educational opportunities. What does it mean in Finland? And, and, and this is one of, one of these things that the uh, equality of educational op opportunity is one of the great American ideals, right? There's been a kind of a foundation of the public education here for a long time. And we have adapted this thinking from America to Finland, right? And our, and, but our understanding about this is uh, has got a very different shape. So I'll, I'll show you something that we, we think about when we think about the equality of educational opportunities now within our current education policies and through these reforms that you have been seeing. First of all, the key thing here is the, um, in, in Finland is the, how education is funded. And I just read the Linda's great little policy brief about the uh, inequities in funding uh, uh, of schools and teachers and it's striking. If you go 
compare this to Finland because we, find, we fund our schools again in a completely opposite way. Yeah? Because the, first of all, the, the school funding is based on the pupil, um, uh, it's a headcount. Yeah? So every school gets exactly the same amount of money based on how many students they are. But if we have schools where students are living in a, in a further away, or if there are more students in a, uh, with the special needs, or handicaps or something like this, or immigrant parents' uh, children, they get more money than the other schools. And this is what we call a positive discrimination in educational funding. So we are targeting more money to those who need more, more funding to be successful, rather than leave the educational funding to the uh, property taxes of the communities or something like this. That is not, in a way, from the Finnish point of view, this is not a fair way of funding education where some, some other things than the actual needs of students or teachers or schools are determining how much money is spent on. So this is a very different way, um, different way to do this. Now we are developing this equitable funding of schools in a new legislation to the point where, where the schools would also get money, kind of a reward if they are able to uh, reduce the, the dropout rate from kids. It's a very low um, dropout rate anyway, but there will be new items in this, uh, in this formula in the future. We have a school lunch for everybody for free, regardless of uh, where children are coming from. It's a, it's a healthy three-course meal, no hamburgers or fries or anything like this. And it's part of the education as well. But most schools are using the school meal as a part of the curriculum, as a part of the education to know how you behave in the table and respect the food. And uh, in many schools, children are responsible for making sure that everything is uh, working well in the cafeteria. So, and this, this was introduced in 19, 1943 in Finland, when we were in war um, against the Soviets. And we were a very poor country. There was a shortage of everything, including food. And some people thought that if we, are, if we want to have a strong Finnish men to confront the, uh, the Red Army, we have to fit, uh, fit them uh, well. So we started to provide a free meal uh, for everybody, boys and girls, in a school in 1943 in the middle of the war. And then we realized that, you know, this is a good idea. Because it's not only good for the war, but it's also good for learning. You know, if you want to make sure that everybody learns, give them food. <laughs> and there's a, there's a joke in Finland, uh, for some people it's a, probably a, a true story as well. When you ask the, particularly boys, when you ask them, what is the what is the favorite, favorite subject in, uh, in the school, they say, the, the recess is the lunch break. <laughs> okay, and we have a, a universal health care in schools by the, by the new legislation that each and every uh, pupil in our school system have to go through a comprehensive health check each every year. So the school has, has to have a nurse. Many schools have uh, doctors visiting there and all sorts of other health care, uh, mental, dental health care services. So in other words, we, are, we make sure that everybody in the school feels good, that they are healthy and fed and, and happy to learn. And this is a very important part of our school system as well. We have, a, as I said, a, a very strong individualized approach to teaching and learning. Special education is a, is a very important part of the, uh, part of the uh, every school's work. Every school has to have a, uh, a specially trained expert for special education uh, who are able to lead this work. And then we think that children has to play. And that's why we have, every school has a recess. The, the law stipulates that one, one lesson is 60 minutes, of which 
15 minutes have to be dedicated to recess. And in most schools, all the children go out after the lesson for at least for 15 minutes, and they go and play, and then they come back and continue to learn. I met somebody in the New York last week, the second grade teacher in the charter school in, in, um, uh, in Harlem, and she said, our school day is nine hours, from nine to six every day, for second graders, seven years old. And there's one 10 minute break in the middle. Can you imagine this? It is, that's what I say. It's not a school, it's a prison. <laughs> yeah? But that, that's, that's how Finnish uh, system is uh, different. So now, if you look at the uh, variation of students uh, learning, how, how this is distributed between, uh, or what is the, what is the, the impact of these um, uh, uh, equity measures that we have built in our education system? Of course, in every system you can see that there are good students and there are those who are not so good. Okay? So there's nothing, uh, nothing special here. But if we you know, divide this variation into two parts, we take the within-school variation, something that comes from the within-school within factors, and then the between-school variation, that's where the interesting thing uh, appears here. So you can see that in the United States and many other countries, America is nothing, the United States is actually the OECD, the OECD average. The, the variation that you have between your schools is about eight to ten times bigger than in Finland. So what does it mean, you say? Well, it means that if you statistically, if you take randomly number of schools in Finland, they are all likely to perform in, in um, academic uh, achievement relatively well. So the differences between schools are not too great. Here in the United States and many other countries, you know how much parents have to think about where to send this, their children when they go to school, right? Yeah. This was when I was in Washington, this was one of the first surprises that I had had. There was no dinner during my five-year tenure in, in, in Washington where at some point people haven't spoke about education and school choice and these things. And this would never, ever happen in Finland. You know, we, don't, we don't have this type of element in our dinner table discourse as where to educate our children because we have, you know, schools are good. Yeah? Not all of them, but we, since we don't have standardized data, we don't know where the bad schools are. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a, one of these nice questions people often ask me. So, when you don't have standardized testing, how do you know where the bad schools or bad teachers are? We don't have any. <laughs> and we don't have any because we don't know. If we had a standardized testing system as you do, we would be able to pinpoint and tell you where the bad schools are. So I think one of the good things not to have standardized testing like uh, many other countries is that you don't need to worry about this, uh, where the bad schools or bad teachers are, because it's a relative thing anyway, right? So you, you, cannot, you cannot judge, according to my understanding, a school or individual teacher by looking at the student's test scores. There's so many other things that go into this picture than, than that, so that's why, that's why we don't really worry about this thing. But this uh, between school variation is a kind of a striking difference. Finland is a leading nation of all countries. We have the smallest between school variation in uh, science, maths, and, and reading. It doesn't matter what the measure is, it's always the same that this uh, or something like this. This is another one, and it's a, it's a very significant, probably the most significant outcome of this OECD PISA research is that we, we are, together with Canada and Japan and Korea, Finland is among those very few countries where the equity and excellence have been able to be achieved at the same time. So this picture will show you 
how the school system and the society, together with the society, is able to uh, deal with these inequalities and differences that all the children are bringing to the school anyway. So there must be, this would not be possible without having a school system where something, the school is doing something to deal with these differences. So this is a, this is for us much more important figure than showing the rank list of where the Finland is that you Americans, you want to do. You always say that the United States is number 25 and 17 and all these things. That's not relevant to me or, or to, to Finns. We want to see how we are doing in, in the broader picture here. The second one is a smart use of time. I'll, I'll speed up a little bit so you will see how how we are dealing with the time in the school. I told already that Finnish teachers teach relatively less than most others, including the uh, teachers in the United States. A typical school day for junior high school teacher is about four less, four forty-five minutes lessons a day, or five, something like it. Depends on the depends on the school. So the the, the teaching load for teachers is is, uh, is re relatively low. So that means that they have much more time for collaboration. And this is what you will see if you go into the schools in Finland. You will see teachers regularly sitting together during the day, talking about teaching and learning and projects and curriculum and assessment and all sorts of other things because they have the opportunity to do that. We also have less classroom hours. So this means that the students are the students have relatively short school days. In elementary grades, the students have three, four uh, lessons a day, no more than five lessons a day, 45 minute lessons. So the school day typically starts from nine to one o'clock, one thirty, something like this. And then the children are free to go and, and do whatever they want to do. We have less homework. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have homework at, at all, but uh, on average, if you take the statistics, uh, <coughs> domestic statistics, you will see that children very rarely in primary school and even in a junior high school do too much homework. High school is a different thing. Then things change, but in this first nine or ten years, the homework is, we don't really believe that the homework is a key to, to educational uh, well-being or success. It's something else that you, it's a, more like a, the quality of um, time and effort that you put in, in, in learning that matters. So that's why our children have more time to play. We, as I said before, we consider play as an extremely important element of uh, learning and development, uh, particularly in, in early, early ages. Academic Insisting people to perform academically is not what we are emphasizing. We have less standardized testing. We don't actually have any standardized measure before the end of the high school, so there's nothing standardized in that sense. All the as assessment and evaluation is done by trained teachers and principals, and they, they are responsible for reporting the students' progress. And then we use the um, sample-based assessments nationally. Right? I can talk about that more. So now if we put the um, cost, money and time and learning together, this is how Finland looks like. That we are spending, as you remember, we are spending uh, less money than average de developed countries and much less than the United States. We spend less time, but the learning achievements are high. And this is how it would look like, um, just to illustrate this in the <laughs> United States. You could put more money and more time there, but your outcomes, the achievement is less. And, and you know, this is something that invites questions about what's, what's going on and, and what, what should we do uh, with this thing. And now lastly, uh, the professionalism. Back to the issue of teachers. Uh, we have been working for 
make, making sure that the our teaching force is equipped with the high professionals now for the last 30 years, since the early 1980s. So now most of our schools um, uh, have teachers who all have research-based master's degrees who are able to not only to teach well in a classroom. You know that the point is not that you have good teachers in a classroom, but you also need to have good teachers in a teacher's lounge when they are working together so that they can they can understand how they de can develop their own work, that they understand teaching, and they can they can fix the problems that are there, and they can also work for their, uh, engage in their own school improvement. And, and this is a very unfortunate way of thinking about the future of teaching, that if only we have a good person in a classroom, everything will be fine, and it won't. You know, work of a teacher is much more than just uh, teaching in the classroom. That's why I'm so critical to the ideas of uh, Teach for America, for example, that is uh, spreading now in, in Europe like a wildfire. In Norway and Latvia and England and many other countries are implementing exactly the same idea that we can uh, replace the, the educated people by somebody who will come and teach only for two or three years and then go. Yeah? I think I belong to those who believe that to be a good teacher, and I'm a teacher myself, you need to be practicing your profession anything from eight to 10 years, right? You know, this, is, this is what many people seem to think, that you need 10,000 hours of practice before you are on the top of your, your craft. And three years or five years is too little. You, you hardly get the kind of a slope where you are starting to understand what's going on there. So that's why I think it's very important to have policies that will try to keep teachers in the schools at least to the point of seven, eight, nine, ten years, so that they can experience what it is to be a great teacher. This is what this is one of the strengths in, in Finland. So now, if you look at this, what is the the, the, the rate between accepted and uh, applied students in, in our university in Helsinki? It's about um, seven, eight percent of applicants are accepted. So the competition is very tough, and you are very lucky if you are if you are able to get in. This this year there was. One student in Helsinki, University of Helsinki, who was trying, who, this was her seventh time to apply to primary school teacher education, and now she was uh, successful. Seven times. You really must love teaching, right? <laughs> if you're going to do that. Okay, so teaching is a kind of, um, I often say that teaching is a way of life in Finland. It's not just only a job, it's a way of life. It's a kind of a form of life for, for many people and a serious choice. So it's a widely valued and respected um, by the society. And when we compare fin uh, in Finland teachers, we are always comparing teachers to those who have a similar level of degree in our research uh, academic universities, like lawyers and doctors and, and many others. I know that in, in the United States, when teachers are compared, People often compare teachers to nurses and therapists and, and something else, but it's, the, it's a very different uh, kind of a status thing. <coughs> so my, my last conclusion here, uh, very quickly, and then we can go to the conversation. Um, uh, since this is a this is a kind of an academic environment, let me let me be a little provocative here as well. I wouldn't do this to if I had a chance to speak to some other uh, people. But uh, just knowing, being part of the uh, academic community myself, I know that you can, sometimes you can be a little bit um, uh, off the track. My point here is that Finland is an interesting example because it's a, it's a kind of a complementing the, the larger pool of 
educational systems that can be labeled as high-performing systems. Yeah? Canada is one of those. Never, you, don't forget Canada. You know, it's just across the border over there, and they have done marvelous things there. Yeah? But too often I find people here in the United States when I said, why don't you go to Canada and see what they do? I said, Canada? Where's that? <laughs> Canada has provinces that are performing exactly like Finland. For example, Alberta in Canada. That's very close here. It's about two hour flight. You can go there, spend three days, and you see the similar things that you see in Finland. Yeah? But if you take Canada, Finland, uh, some Asian countries like Singapore, for example, or Japan and Korea, many of those who have been able to create a, a high-performing equitable system. This raises seven, three questions for your policies here that I, I label here as wrong policies. And that's why I'm saying that as long as educational reform is driven by these ideas, there will be very little hope to be successful because nobody has ever been successful in driving the educational reform with the same ideas as you do. So it will be the first time in the history of mankind if you are able to achieve your goals with these policies. And I'm very sorry, but I see that you have no hope <laughs> on that. So what are these, what are these, uh, these drivers? The first one is the testing policy. People often ask me that, so what would you change in America if you could change one thing that would make a difference? I have been thinking about this a lot. And I would say that change your standardized testing policy, how you, how you see the uh, standardized testing for good. How many of you are tweeting? Some of, some of you, yeah? There was, uh, somebody sent me the uh, interview of Michelle Rhee yesterday, a couple of days ago, and Michelle Rhee in the, this interview is talking about Finland as she was an expert of, of Finnish education system. And she said that there are people like union people and academics who say that if we only model Finland, everything will be fine here. And we are not say, talking about modeling Finland. I, I sent the tweet after reading, reading this interview saying that Finland is not the solution for America. But get rid of your standardized testing, and that, it, that is. You know, don't think Finland as a solution. It's, it's not like this. The, 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 the issues are somewhere else. And I think that this whole idea of testing and using this test data for all sorts of things is just uh, driving people crazy everywhere. And it's, uh, if I look at this thing as a kind of an external Educator, I, I think that they, uh, nobody really seems to know anymore what to do with this thing. It's just uh, this testing data is used for so many things. And I can, any, every day I open a newspaper here, there is a story or two about this um, negative sides of standardized testing. Either it's the cheating or corruption or preparing, uh, taking the time from uh, social studies and arts and dance and drama and ask little children to sit in the mass and literacy classes just because they want to be good in, in this test. It's absolutely crazy. It doesn't lead anywhere, for sure. The second one is the accountability policy. That is a kind of a related thing that as soon as we enter the business of using the test-based accountability as a criteria of school goodness and rewarding individuals, you know, giving salary increases and bonuses for individual teachers if they're able to raise their test scores, Another crazy thing. It doesn't go anywhere. Because the, you know, in Finland, we have a definition for accountability. We don't have this word really in education discourse. But we have a definition anyway for our accountability. It's something like this. Accountability is what is left when responsibility is subtracted. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah. Accountability is something that is left when responsibility is taken away. That's, then we have accountability. And we, in Finland and many other countries, we are doing trying to do just the opposite. 
we are trying to strengthen the responsibility of people, including students, teachers, principals, parents, about the education and upbringing. The stronger the accountability is, the less there will be responsibility, and this is, uh, this is a wrong policy, a wrong course of uh, development. And then the, finally, the teacher policy, since we are here in this great university and, uh, and center for education research, the, the whole idea of deprofessionalizing teaching by using uh, questionable policies and solutions to these things where teachers will feel demoralized and they leave the job, leave teaching because of this. And we should be doing exactly the opposite. We should be increasing and raising the, the, the status of teachers and their professional esteem. And this is again what all these successful countries have been doing. None of them have been using these as a driving policy. I'm not saying that testing is bad or accountability is bad or or, or evaluating teachers is a bad thing, but we, we cannot use these as the main drivers for educational improvement. No, no country has done it before. Yeah. So this is, I think, one of the significant lessons of, uh, of Finland. And I, in my book, I use the term uh, germ. It's a global educational reform movement. <laughs> it's a germ. It's like virus. It's like moving around and infecting education systems and ministers and presidents with these crazy ideas and some others that I describe in the book. Okay? But I'm not going to talk about this term uh, because you have to buy the book, remember? <laughs> yeah, but I can tell you, this is my, my last slide and commercial. If you read the book, I can promise you that it kills 99.9% .9 <laughs> of all germs. Thank you very much. <laughs> The reason for this, 
there are many, and it's actually a very complicated thing because in 19, in early 1990s, there were two or three interesting things going on. One was that there was a, this ultra-conservative move, political movement around the world. The uh, the first George Bush, uh, sorry, Reagan was uh, leading this country in uh, 1980s, right? And Margaret Thatcher in England, and um, and this uh, this was a kind of a wave that all also touched upon the uh, public policies in in northern uh, Europe. So we. We were kind of attracted by the idea of reducing the size of the government and handing over the uh, authority and autonomy to the municipalities and schools. Exactly the same time when this was going on, something else happened that, uh, that was a very significant, particularly for Finland, and it was a collapse of the Soviet Union. And that time we had our, about our foreign trade about one quarter was with the Soviet Union. So it was a, it was a huge negative impact on our economy. The, the, that we lost this part of the thing. And if you have an economic downturn, as you know, it immediately affects the government, the public spending. So we were there where we had two, two or three things going. And the third one was this uh, uh, increasing professionalism again, uh, uh, among the teachers, that we had had this uh, system that produced highly trained teachers, and they were now in schools and asking for more autonomy, more freedom, and more flexibility, and all, all sorts of things. So, in the midst of these, these changes, we decided to uh, abolish the inspectorate, and this was done because we, want, we needed to save money, yeah? And we decided to have a curriculum change that would give teachers and schools more autonomy in the spirit of this uh, neoliberal movement in Europe and the world. Uh, but we did it in a, in a different, uh, different way. Um, so. I, you know, all these things, are, it's, it's very difficult to say that we did it because of educational reasons. I think it, the educational reasons were not the main reason why Finland was able to do this. At the same time, we had a Nokia coming, remember this? Uh, the, the kind of a very rapid um, rise of Nokia enterprise, Nokia company in the 1990s, was uh, something that pulled Finland out of this recession. And when Nokia, when we spoke with Nokia, I was working in the ministry, and we spoke to Nokia and said, so what, what type of... Uh, science and maths education you want to have in the schools. And whatever they said, it was a very significant, it, it was almost like a thriving um, ideas came from Nokia. And interestingly, like I write in my book, you know, the CEO of Nokia didn't say that, train them so that they know maths and science and technology. That we need some young people who have good skills in, in those things. I vividly remember these meetings when the CEO, then CEO said that, you know, I really don't care what you do there in the school. Promise me that you don't take away this creativity and flexibility that we have now in our school system. And then I said to the CEO, tell me a little bit more about this, what do you mean? And, and he said, that, you know, if I hire somebody, a young person, to work with me here, and he or she doesn't have all the maths or science, I have thousands of people here who can fix this in six weeks. But if I hire somebody who is uh, not able to work together with others, who is afraid to take risks, who rarely come up with the new ideas that have any value, there's nothing I can do with this people. There's nobody in my, my company that can help and fix these minds. So keep it open, keep it creative. And it was, a, it was a very, very important message for us because we understood that you cannot really standardize these things, but you have to leave the creativity and kind of a uh, role for teachers and local curriculum to decide so that they can come up with the crazy ideas. So there are many, many things combined here. And Anybody who would like to uh, try to explain why we do this, just using one 
one reason this probably would make a mistake here. I know there's a lot of interest in getting some questions up, so I'm going to let people uh, start raising mm -hmm. questions. Maybe we'll take a couple of questions and then you can answer them, you know, in a, in a group. Martin? Yeah, I'm sorry to, to jump in a little bit. I have to leave, so I thought I'd ask my questions. Um, I'm a great fan of Finland. I, I won't tell you about all the times I've been there, but, uh, uh, and some of them very long ago, and I remember distinctly how Finland, how poor Finland was. And I think your Swedish stories are telling because I always felt that there was this tremendous competition. You should also, I guess, tell people that a rather significant proportion of the population in Finland is actually of Swedish origin. Yeah, about 6%. Six, six on the coast. On the west coast, yes. Anyway, uh, since you chose to be provocative, let me be provocative. Sure. Roll the dice. <laughs> I just did a back-of-the-envelope calculation for look, uh, looking at the TIM score in Massachusetts for, for math and just converted it to a PISA score, more or less. And in math, where you guys do a lot better, in fact, everybody does a lot better than the United States uh, in, in PISA, and in TIMS. Uh, in reading, the differences are not as great, but it, I just want to tell you that Massachusetts math score is, first of all, higher than the average in Canada, uh, in PISA, and is not that much less than yours. Uh, and so, you know, you could argue that the main problem is that we have a 24% child poverty rate and you have a 4% child poverty rate. So that, first of all, certainly would change the in-between in school variation, uh, which is not corrected for social class. Uh, of course, you could argue that we have this high school segregation problem, I mean, a spatial segregation problem, in which uh, we bunch our poor people into bad schools and in bad you know, communities have all kinds of problems. So I'm just wondering, question one, I have to use. I think you, uh, you've talked about the social welfare part, but maybe you don't include those costs in your overall school costs. And those are pretty high in Finland. You don't include that you have the most expensive, if I remember correctly, early childhood education preschool education. Even in Scandinavia, it's, high, it's more expensive than, it used to be more expensive than Sweden and Norway, and Denmark. And you don't include that, which starts at two years old, as far as I remember, two and a half. I want to ask one more question. I was just Sorry. asking if, if you had a question. <laughs> I have a question, I have a question what, whether how big those costs are. And secondly, let me be even more provocative. Your PISA scores, went down in between 2003 and 2009, quite significantly, especially in uh, reading in your lower social class groups, as measured by books at home. I went down a lot in those lower And um, US scores for all their problems and their testing went up a lot, particularly if you divide by social class groups. And so we,
cut the difference between Finland and the United States by two-tenths of a standard deviation in both math and reading. So I want to ask you, how do you explain those test scores going down in Finland, particularly in those low-income I think you've got about five questions on the table here. So we're we'll take this. I won't ask any others until we have give you a chance to answer. No, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of good uh, thinking there. Of course, one, one problem we have with uh, when we compare, uh, uh, when we mix the, the TIMS and PISA is that they, they are, you know, they are different measurements, they are different yardsticks. The other one is measuring something that is more referring to the curriculum, and the other one is, the PISA is trying to, to measure some other areas, and I, I think I have some problems probably um, dealing with that and combining these things and, and comparing TIMS and PISA in well, let me just say they're they're highly correlated across. I I know, yeah, I, I know this one, but it's uh, you know, part part of the Finnish success is also explained that our the, the the way of organizing schooling and teaching children has been for a long time pretty much aligned with the when the PISA came that we already had this type of problem problem solving oriented uh, team based uh, teaching and learning uh, in the schools. That is not. Typical to the countries, particularly where there's a, where the the, the uh, standardized testing culture is a kind of a driving thing, or national assessments, like in many many uh, other places. But I think one point of your 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 interesting um, uh, remarks, and this is this literacy thing again. I think we need to be careful there when we when we compare the. Um, uh, the PISA results between different different years because PISA is built in a, in a particular way. You really need to understand also the structure of this testing. That they in in each three year cycles, one of the three subjects is a kind of a primary um, area that is uh, constituting about seventy percent of the measurement. And only now we have a we have a first time now between two thousand and two thousand and nine PISA when we can compare the reading literacy to one. Uh, one another, but I, I, I hear you, what you're saying. And in Finland, if you if you ask me that, what is the what is the main challenge in our education? I would probably include this declining habit of reading, and particularly habit of reading for pleasure among boys, as one of the most important uh, problems and challenges that we have. But we have we have realized that since 2000, in our own domestic research, that we have less and less boys and less and less young people, but particularly boys, who are reading for fun. And their, their reading scores and literacy competencies are, are coming down. And this is something that if we are, and now when we are dealing with these things, that this is something where we have to target most of our attention to make sure that we are not dropping out these, uh, these kids. But otherwise, the reading, the, the, the PISA scores have been increasing all the way until 2006, and then from two, uh, 2009, now is the first time when something has happened. Read my book and you will see what the story will be from from here to 2020. It's, it's not a very nice one <laughs> for Finns. Um, one of the things, um, Martin, that you said that I think is a useful thing for Americans to think about, and I, I think Patsy would agree with it, is that if you're spending resources productively in the uh, welfare system to be sure that people are employed, have health care, etc., then the demands on the education system for making up for that are, are less. And I think you yeah. established that at the beginning. Yeah, just one comment to your question about the, the preschool. We have, 
we still have the zero to six uh, part of the children's uh, um, life. It's not considered as education. It's under the social care uh, ministry of budget. So it's not part of the education. And when our law says that every child has a right to daycare from zero, from birth to the age six when they go to uh, voluntary preschool. Most of the parents pay for that. It's not a public service. It's compensated by, by the public funds, but uh, if both parents are working and I put my child to daycare, I pay about $250 a month for the daycare. It's a maximum, it's a kind of a ceiling for the, for the payment. If, that, if, that if, you're students, if you're a student, if you're not working, then it's I just want you to be careful about throwing costs for students out there. Because if you don't include that stuff, and if you don't include the social welfare part of it, you're, you're really not telling the whole story. And you're really separating the school. This is exactly what Linda said. And it's a very important point that you want to make on the other side. Yeah. It isn't. Oh, I do want to get some other folks in, but I think it's you know I think Pasi made that point at the sure. beginning. That's an important one for us because we're always challenged on our high costs of education, and we're feeding kids and handling health care and trying to make up for poverty in that dollar figure. Uh, the lady in the red hat, and then I'll come over here to this lady over here, and then this gentleman um, in the front. I spent a year or part of a year teaching at the University of Purple, and I'm finishing our pencil. I know something about the system from that experience. Um, and one of the things is that <clears throat> you stated that the uh, Finnish system really isn't uh, tied to EU policies. Um, and I think the Bologna Accords, uh, which I think were in 04, stated and they were passed that the EU has committed itself to serve, that schools should serve the market economy. And that therefore the purpose of schooling is not to, uh, to become a more equitable, fair-minded person, but rather to develop some skills so that you can be a productive worker. Um, I'd like a response to that and I'd also um, uh, like to say that Another reason why the uh, literacy rate may be going down, <clears throat> beyond the fact that television and, and technology has had an impact across the world on people's cognitive abilities, and there's been a real degradation of reading in this country, the literacy rate is going down uh, very considerably, is that uh, while I was there, I visited elementary and high schools and saw that there was an increasing number of children from new immigrant families who had a wide range of different uh, learning uh, abilities and language issues and cultural mores that I'm sure will create more uh, impact on PISA scores for sure and everything else in general. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This very rapidly increasing um, number of immigrant children in Finland will will have an effect on the system. I don't know how it's going to be still in the <coughs> visa visa 
studies so far, <coughs> the proportion of uh, immigrant-based pupils is so small that we cannot make any statistically reliable or significant comparisons. Now, in this, uh, in April, when we are collecting the 2012 visa data, Finland has decided to um, include all 15-year-old first or second generation immigrants into this national sample. And, and just because we want to be able to say something about how, how they are performing compared to the native Finns. My comment on the European Union policies, there, there's, as I said, there's no common uh, education regulation or policy for, uh, binding policy for education um, at all in, uh, in Europe. So anybody can do whatever they do. And if I understand what you're saying, that is not correct. The, the, the European Union cannot <coughs> stipulate or say what the purpose of education systems in the member states uh, should be. And if you, if you look at the um, different countries within the European Union, they have very differently uh, stated legislation and, and edu educational strategies, where Finland and Sweden and some other countries in the north very strongly state the equality and equity side, and some, somewhere else it's more economic or, or something else. But there's no EU. There's no EU regulation in, in, in um, Europe regarding education. I think that one thing that came out of Bologna was an effort to begin to standardize credit-bearing systems in higher education. Yeah, it's only higher education yeah. in Bologna. Yeah. And so that may be part of what you're thinking yeah. about. Um, okay, I was going to come over to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have your hand up. <laughs> Let's try to keep our questions short because we have about 10 minutes. I have a master's student in learning design technology program, and I know that in, uh, Finland was the first country who uh, declared internet as a basic human right, and it's a very, like almost 95% of Finland is wired. So I was wondering, how would you explain the role of technology in improving Finland's education system? Well, you know, the interesting thing with the, the education system and technology is that we, it's like, um, Somebody, I think somebody from this university wrote a book, nice book, um, some 10 years ago about the uh, overspend and underused about the, the education and technology. And, and we are exactly that position still, that we have uh, all the smartphones and, and computers and everything in our schools, but teachers are always reporting when we ask them to uh, how much you use these things, all this technology for education, that the, the rate is relatively low which probably indicates the fact that Finnish teachers who are trained pedagogues, they are trained to work with people that they still see this value, and particularly these days when, when children and families have, by the way now for the first time in the history of mankind, the, uh, the families are beginning to have more advanced technology at home than schools or workplaces, but they find it kind of a, irrelevant. And many of the, the pupils know much more about how to use iPad or computers than any of the teachers in the school. But I, I think that in Finland, many, many uh, educators and teachers think that, you know, school should, this little time that we have in a school should be for, you know, for human interaction and not so much dealing with the, all these technological things that the kids are much better to do anyway. So it's, uh, I, 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 would, I wouldn't market Finnish education as something that is a very advanced in, in applying educational technology there. I think most teachers and schools are very comfortable with the thing, and they know how to, what are the kind of added value of using uh, technology, but there are very few people uh, who would um, 
take the technology first and then put the pedagogy aside and say that this is the solution and we can deal, deal with these things. The, 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 still the pedagogy is a kind of a driving force. Yeah. If I could just add one footnote on that from my um, visits to Finnish schools. Um, you see a lot of collaborative learning in classrooms organized in a variety of ways uh, and a lot of emphasis on kids finding the answers and inquiring and learning to learn. And so where I saw technology used, it was when kids had a research project uh, and they needed to you know, acquire resources and figure out how to put ideas together and information together uh, as part of that investigation. I didn't see any place where kids were sitting in front of computer screens being managed by the computer to march through a set of, you know, uh, drills or activities or anything like that, which you would see uh, a lot more in perhaps in the United States. So, you know, you can see the use of technology, but it's in that spirit of inquiry and investigation, and then a lot of collaboration. Kids are always collaborating on the projects, I think. I said I would come to you, and then I'll come over here. Uh, looking at children between the ages of zero to six, where would you, where do you think the wide divergence between American children and Finnish children begin? Is it something as early as parenting early on? Because it seems like where that where we begin to distinct where Finnish children begin to be different from ours, it seems like that's how early we would need to start. Well, it's a very important question, really, and uh, I think we we all have to remember that children are nevertheless when they're born they have all the same uh, they have the same same um, uh, opportunity to go forward depending on how how they are treated. We have, I, I would say that it starts already before pregnancy. It's, it's before the children are born because the, the way our healthcare system is, uh, is guiding and making sure that, you know, everybody, you cannot be a mother, pregnant mother in Finland, regardless of your age or position, wherever you live, without uh, going through, through this compulsory system of, uh, 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 pregnancy care, I don't know what's the right term for this. But you have, everybody has a program that you have to follow when you are pregnant so that everything will be will be fine. And so it starts before that. And um, of course the first six years are very, very important. Um, um, but I, I think that, I'm not quite sure how things work here, but many people tell me that, that you know, this is the significant thing. What, how mothers are helped and supported, uh, and families actually, fathers as well, um, at the time. The, the basic health infrastructure is much more comprehensive. Uh, yeah. um, you made a brief reference to Sweden. Um, could you say a little bit about how Finland compares to the other Nordic countries? Mm -hmm both in terms of performance on PISA and other tests, but also on their policies. And if they are looking to Finland as a model, are they pursuing <laughs> <laughs> something? That's very sensitive. Uh, have we, uh, I'm from Norway, I'm wondering if the Norwegians have learned anything from you. Because apparently it's done, Norway has a very different system. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, the social values in all Nordic countries are pretty much the same. And the education policies now, we all emphasize the, the equity and equality and these opportunities pretty much the same way. We adopted the Swedish uh, basic school, this Grundschule uh, idea in 1960s. It's, it's pretty much the, the Swedish idea, the, the, uh, the implementation. 
And you know, I belong to one of those now. I'm traveling extensively around the Nordic countries in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland. And I'm, anywhere I go, I try to promote this, this urgency that we in the, in the Scandinavia, we have to turn now to look what we have done in our own countries. Because Norway is doing this. You come to the United States and people in Sweden, they go to Australia and we are all looking outside. Yeah? Right. And we meet here, right? <coughs> and we, we, should be, we should be meeting somewhere in uh, Oslo or Copenhagen. And you know, look at this Scandinavian Nordic way of, uh, of educating. I'm, I'm calling the, the Nordic way of thinking about public education as a fourth way of, uh, of education. There's something, something different there that we value and would like to, um, li like to see. But we unfortunately are still, uh, I don't know, we, we are present with this, this kind of an old way of thinking that you can you cannot turn, turn to your neighbor, just like you cannot go to Canada, you cannot go to Sweden or Norway, and that's something we have to change, you know, we have to stop this. In fact, we have an organization called Nordic Innovation in Oslo that's supposed to look uh, at the Nordic region as a whole, but as far as I'm aware, they have not really promoted that. Exactly, and then we have this uh, wonderful Nordic, we have the thing called Nordic Council of Ministers. Right. So it's like a little European Union, a little <laughs> United States in, a, in the north, where we have money and we have political mechanisms and everything. If we just want to sit down and see that what, what is the kind of a common ground we have here, what should I do? It's an, an, an interesting irony. Yeah. But, uh, I was in Iceland this summer and then just uh, adopted a master's degree for all teachers, which is one of the things that Finland did and transform the concepts of teacher education. Um, they were asking me for thoughts and advice about that. I said, have you gone to Finland and looked at what they've done? <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. so, and, and Norwegians have come here to look at the Stanford teacher education program because we actually have an international uh, group of people who come through to look at this program. Uh, but again, uh, Finland's too close, I think. <laughs> so I maybe, see a lot of it. Too close and too near. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, I, I want to uh, honor our time. Uh, Pasi will be here. I think we're going to move to the uh, area out here. He'll be signing books if anybody wants that. Uh, a book signing. You can ask another, sneak another question, and perhaps <laughs> as you uh, have that opportunity, please uh, join me in thanking Pasi. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.